And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Ryan Oliver. And I'm Chris Thomas. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about this week's uh, uh, episode. I think we have a, a pretty unique mix here, but I, I will kick it over to you to explain a bit. I know you teased it at the end of last week's episode that these are all remakes of classic horror movies. So if you want to give us a little insight into what uh, what led you to this category and the, the picks in particular. Yeah, and, and just a quick correction of last week myself off the bat. I said that they were all black and white movies, but I completely forgot that one of them, one of the classic movies, uh, was in color. Uh, I just associated it with black and white movies uh, because it's old, but that's just me having bad memory. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to frame this in, in, I know that we had had a conversation in a previous episode about how horror is reflective of the fears of the times and... and as movies are um, uh, updated and upgraded over time, they will just change to, to meet those tastes. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at a movie that at once was terrifying to people in the 50s and the 60s and then see how that was affecting audiences or being played towards audiences in, we'll do the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s respectively here. Um, so that we're, we're crossing all sorts of generations uh, in, in you know filmmaking history and horror history. Um, and I, I think we end up with a pretty good smattering of, uh, of scares. I, I agree. I, it was, it was actually really nice to go through these, uh, especially because, uh, going into this episode, cause really for research purposes, we needed to watch six movies, the, the originals and then the remakes. And, uh, of these six, I had only seen two. Oh, wow. Um, so prior, so that this, that I was glad to fill in some blind spots um you know one of them maybe i wasn't as glad to fill in but i actually <laughs> but as, as a filmmaker i do like even if it's not the movie itself i'm glad that i at least uh gave it gave it a crack so i can't can't complain too hard well and i know that we touched on it roughly like you know very briefly uh before jumping on mike so i am excited to get to that conversation so um since we've got so much that we need to discuss I may as well just jump in here and introduce the picks um, so for the purposes of the episode, we will mainly be addressing the remakes. Uh, we'll touch on the older movies for context, but we will not be doing full reviews of all six movies. Uh, we're more or less just saying what they did correctly and incorrectly when adapting for a, a new, um, quote unquote, modern at the time, modern audience. Um, so our picks are going to be, uh, the blob from 1988 directed by Chuck Russell, which is a remake of the 1958 Directed by Irvin S. Yeworth Jr. Um, the Bad is going to be Psycho from 1998. Directed by Gus Van Sant. It was the remake of Psycho from 1960. Of course directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And then finally the What is going to be Thir 13 and in Ghosts. 
or 13 Ghosts from 2001, <laughs> directed by Steve Beck. Um, it's a remake of 13 Ghosts from 1961, which was directed by William Castle. Um, I also thought it was fun that of the three picks that we've gone with, we went uh, monster movie, proto-slasher, and then uh, ghost movie. So yes. we're, we're all sorts of categories all over the place here. But the, I, I think the because of the crux of the episode, they are still related in a good, bad, what category because of how we're framing them. Absolutely. No, I think I think we have quite a gamut here. And, you know, like you said, between decades and the types of movies. So I'm, I'm really excited. And I guess um, now that you've announced the picks, I could just say that the only two I had seen prior to this were the original Psycho and the remake of 13 Ghosts <laughs> or, or the 13 Ghosts. <laughs> 13 and then Ghosts. 13 and then Ghosts. That's right. I was like, I couldn't remember the pronunciation <laughs> of it. Um, so, so, you know, and I, I guess maybe that's a good kick into the, the good, uh, you know, to start because I had not seen either version of the blob going oh, into this. Wow. Both of them were, were definite blind spots for me. Um, so I'm glad that they're rectified. Yeah, well, I'm glad that I could introduce you to them. Uh, yeah, we'll just start with The Blob. If it had a body, you could shoot it. If it had a heart, you could kill it. Now, man is no longer the supreme being on this planet. The Blob. Terror has no shape. I adore the remake. I, of course, saw the remake before I saw the, the original from 1958. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. I picked up their Criterion Blu-ray of the original and watched that one. I own both of them now. Um, I, I think, for me, I have my own opinions of them. I want to really quickly get into uh, synopsis first, and, and then uh, I'll go to you for impressions. But... Um, the synopsis is, when a meteorite crashes to Earth carrying a gelatinous, flesh-eating organism, social outcast Flag, played by Kevin Dillon, teams up with the girl next door, Meg, played by Shawnee Smith, to save their small town. Um, it's very simple. Uh, it, it's basically the same premise as what we got out of the 1958 version. There's a few things that they updated uh, to, to bring it into the 80s, which we'll definitely get into. But um, that is my cue to kick it over to you. Uh, how did you feel about 1988's The Blob? I liked it quite a bit, um, and and like I said, it was a shock that I hadn't really seen it before because uh, I know it's it's uh, you know it was a financial failure at the time, um, but like it it's really garnered a cult following, and I think a lot of people do. Uh, I think yourself included uh, prefer it to to the mm-hmm. original. Um, but like I said, I had not seen either, so I watched the original first, and it's it's definitely one of those movies that. I, I see its place, like, right where it's, like, it was Steve McQueen's first starring role, so that's a big deal, and, like, for the time, the effects that they used were, you know, terrifying, and it was, you know, and it was the 50s, it was post-World War II, we're going into, like, the Cold War, so it's just, like, I understand some of the anxieties and the uncertainties uh, in there, but, um, needless to say, uh, it, it's definitely a bit outdated, Um and I, I nearly did a spit take when I know I make the joke a lot when we talk about slasher movies in particular about 35 year old teenagers because they cast with people who are way older than they are. And uh, Steve McQueen was 28 when he made the blob. And one of the police officers in the movie at one point goes, it's like, I can't fault him too much. He's only 17 years old. And I was like, uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> uh, um, okay, sure. 
he was 1958-28. So he he was a he was a pretty rough 28. I mean, like he's a young guy, but back then, like you were smoking by the time you were 14. So like, oh, he looks he's not the same. passing for a teenager. Well, no, he looks the same because like two two years later, did the Great Escape. Yeah. So it was like which like same it's just is like in my brain i just couldn't i couldn't do it even though i think mcqueen is very good in the movie and it's very clear you know why you know he became a, a beloved star in the first place um but i definitely think it was right for a remake because like you said the story is very simple and the remake takes a lot of the same elements especially a lot of the famous iconography like especially the, the movie theater attack scene mm-hmm. they they do up in this one um the, the restaurant as well but i love how they sort of like remix some of it where it's like you know the restaurant of course was the climax of the original movie where it's right. like it's definitely more sort of in the middle of this one and they definitely make some other adjustments but it, it's a pretty it's a pretty faithful adaptation but with better special effects it is inherently grosser um, oh yeah like the, <laughs> the subtitle said like menacing gurgling or something like that mm-hmm. like it was like it made me laugh every single time but like you knew it was about to pop off when you heard that saw that little subtitle uh pop up oh yeah and it's and it's yeah it's super super gross it, it's 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 definitely not as good as the movie i'm about to say but i think the easy comparison would be like the thing the remake of the thing sure um because it's like that you had better special effects it was a re- also a remake of the movie from the 1950s um it's gorier it's grosser uh and was a financial failure in its time um so it's it's a pretty one to one but unfortunately uh you know sorry Johnny drama but there's nobody who equates Kurt Russell or Keith David in this movie no. uh but they do the best they do their best with what they're given um and I like filmmaker Chuck Russell as well, like, you know, most notably because he got, um, he did the most successful or at least the most beloved um, Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. He did Dream Warriors, the third one, two years prior to this, and then uh, then got to meet the remake of The Blob. And then um, I think it was, I feel like, did he make something? I don't remember if he made something in between this and The Mask, but, I th- but then he would go on to do The Mask, which was, of course, a huge hit. Right. Um, let me actually just check. Uh, I feel I was like looking up because I couldn't remember because I'm like I was like you know because he had a quite a hot streak of like Dream Warriors, uh, the Blob, a hot streak in quality anyway. The Blob, the Mask, Eraser, uh, the mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which was also a big hit. Uh, then he did Bless the Child, which was a bomb. The Scorpion King, which while not a good movie, wasn't a financial failure. And then he like completely dropped off the face of the earth for like twenty years. It's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and I mean like that's a pretty good like those first four movies. Say what you will about Eraser. I think Eraser's still really fun. But oh, agree. To for those first four movies, I mean, what a run. Uh, I, I think those are all to to some varying degree uh, successful movies or, or good movies. Um, I also just wanted to point out that the the comparison to uh, the thing is not lost on me. Uh, I I think a lot of it also has to come down to the the choice of colors in the movie. It's all taking place sort of at night. It's very claustrophobic. There's a lot of blue gels going on, so it it's it, it's really capturing sort of this in between world of. 1950s i mean like the diner waitress is wearing sort of like the the uh like a sarah connor get up um it it looks like a classic diner would uh be 
in there they're, they're driving classic cars and and things like that and so it, it's it's sort of blending these two worlds but that dark cinematography goes a long way for me in sort of evoking you know dean cundy um and the way that he would shoot carpenter's films like that i i wanted to point out the cinematographer for this um it was mark Irwin uh who mm-hmm. shot scream yep. um so like he is no stranger to shadows or to shooting horror movies himself, and it's also we would be remiss to say to not mention that um, one of the credited screenwriters is Frank Darabont, um, who himself has uh, been a part of making some uh, excellent uh, horror movies. One of which we've uh, talked about on the show already, uh, being The Mist. Um, he also knows his way around these types of stories. So I. Some of the things that I appreciated in this movie that they expanded on or went into a bit further is there's the, the characters are more fleshed out. Their motivations are a bit you know uh, more understandable. Um, of course, the the blob in the first movie crashes into the earth. Uh, a homeless guy goes to poke it with a stick and it latches to his hand um, and. It, it will jump on people and they'll be there one minute and then they're gone the next minute. So it's not very gruesome. It's like we understand that the blob is consuming them and, and you know, uh, digesting them, but it, it, it's not shown. And really the bulk of the movie is people in rooms talking about what they saw and then someone else saying, are you sure you saw what you saw? Uh, I mean, I think I did. And then having like a back and forth conversation this movie decides to not let up. I mean, like, we, we are introduced to it. We know what's going on. But then instead of the, the homeless guy just being like, well, he was here one minute and now he's gone. Like, we get a full-on shot of, like, his partially digested torso on the bed, like, still steaming um, from from being uh, uh, mostly eaten away. And then um, a character that's introduced as possibly going to be our main character for the movie, or we think it's going to be our heroic character, unceremoniously, very brutally digested in front of our eyes. Um, it, the, there's stuff that they're throwing in here that's breaking away from the 58 original, but, like, they, they will, like, introduce, like, this familiar scene, like, the diner scene but like like you mentioned at the end of the end of the 58 one the blob basically consumes the whole building and mm-hmm. then the townsfolk have to surround it and spray it down with some fire extinguishers in order to freeze it enough to where it will like you'll get off of the building and they can save everyone inside this one is a there's full-on set pieces of the the dishwasher getting pulled down the drain um, along with like bone crunching, squelching sounds as his body contorts and packs into a drain pipe, um, the the uh, woman running out of the diner and getting into the phone booth, and which the blob then completely surrounds and smashes in like a car wreck, and takes her out. Like there are there are set pieces like that that are purely like honestly really terrifying. And unsettling. Like, there's some legit scary stuff going on in this movie while being super, super fun. And, I mean, for me, that is, like, a recipe for the the best movie ever. I want to be a little scared, and I want to be having a a great time. And that's, like, 99% of this movie. Oh, yeah. And and the way the movie does, like, little, like... Um, I don't want to say like overtly comedic necessarily, but like the movie does a lot of clever things like, right. like, like specifically one that uh, like threw me off and I, I loved it is the sort of cut 
to two people that are like out at a campsite that are like like oh there's a peeping tom out there like we'll give them something to watch and it's like cut like the movie you're watching and then it they makes a cut and it's the movie theater and right. it goes to like the two kids who are watching the movie and i was like god <laughs> that's so great like <laughs> it's such a like great little like uh, a subversion um and I well, love that. And even like the line that they're watching, because there's that dickhead guy behind him that's more or less like being an asshole patron and, and commentating on what's happening in the movie. And like from the screen, you can hear like, this isn't the season to be trimming hedges. Like, they're, <laughs> the characters in the movie are like so uh, ill equipped for what's happening to them. And it's, I it's, know. I love them poking fun at the genre tropes uh, for the audience, knowing that we're going to get it. Oh, yeah. Well, like, even, like, when the kids are going, like, to the movie, because uh, uh, Shawnee Smith's brother is, like, staying mm-hmm. over at a friend's house. The friend's brother, older brother, is an usher at the movie theater. And he's like, oh, he'll get us into the movie. And he's like, the mother's like, I don't want you watching that trash. Like, acknowledging <laughs> that what we're watching is, like, a, a, a bit more, like, classier from a production standpoint, but is also, like, kind of trash at the same time. Right, yeah. So, I, like, I, they, they know what they're doing. And it's, but it's... It doesn't consume the whole movie, no pun intended. Like, you know, it, 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 it's pretty much... The movie plays the 50s monster movie element very straight. It just updates it with better effects, better gore. Like you said, more fleshed out characters. Um, more people get got by the blob, um, you know, like, and it's... it's and it, like, adheres to those slasher tropes because it's definitely... Like, some people get it and it really sucks. And then some people get it and you're like, ah, oh, well, there's that per Like, they deserve to get it. There's like like the guy who's like uh like the guy the, like the girl passes out and he's like trying to like yeah. feel her up and then he gets he gets me gooed, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. How, how long ago did you think of that one? I've been holding on to that since I watched this movie. I was like, <laughs> I have to resist the urge not to text that to to Chris or mark it anywhere. I'm going to save it for the episode. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, be proud of that one. But um. Uh, and yeah, like I said, of course, like, you know, people, people get it that we care about. Like you said, our, our football jock character, you know, who like, I was convinced I was like, oh, this is our, you know, it's the, he's like the McQueen character or mm-hmm. they're setting it up. Like he's the Steve McQueen character. And then they're going to have to go figure out and tell the town that this thing is happening. And then he, nope, he gets off unceremoniously and then it's her and, and the greaser who's played by Kevin Dillon who have to go off and, 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 you know, try and convince people what they saw. Um, right. So it was a nice little like nice little touch there to to be like, hey, like, you know, kind of like our next movie, like where they're like, here's your main character. Oh, just kidding. Oh, oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They MacGuffined us. But, I mean, I I thought that was a great choice to, to have that misdirection. And I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty obvious from the beginning that Kevin Dillon was going to have a big role, which is not really there, there's no real comparable character like that in the 58 one. Of course, there's like the other kid that mcqueen like races against that they end up teaming up towards the end of the movie but he doesn't have any sort of screen time or character development like what we're getting out of kevin dylan's character in here so you saw that it was going to go that one way but i'm glad that they sort of touched on each of these characters gave them each a bit of a vignette so that by the time we we get that um that the surprise early exit from the the football player we already have another character that we can fall back on that we're already invested in, but we already, like, at that point, we're like, okay, nobody's safe, which is 
a great sort of idea to put into the head of your audience is is that you know you thought we were going one way we will kill that guy so who else are we willing to kill in the movie and then all of a sudden the stakes are much higher for everyone else that's still on screen oh for sure but i think one of the better ways that they raise the stakes in this one versus the 1958 one is the introduction of the uh, government which is a very late 80s idea that the government has secret biological or you know um uh, extinction level uh, weapons that they are experimenting on and they're willing to um sacrifice the lives of civilians in order to get their test data um it's a very very 80s uh idea that uh was not really present in the 50s one that in the 50s one they more or less worked with the cops there was one cop who was kind of an asshole and, and didn't really buy uh what they were trying to sell them but for the most part they get on board and they every everybody bands together at the end of the movie to take out the blob and this one is more of a like fight not only against the blob but then they're they're getting shot at and shit by by the the pursuing government agents uh which just added that level of paranoia and fear that like it's not about convincing these guys they know and they're willing to kill you in order to keep the secret um which is i I think just a a genius way to uh make your third act a bit more hectic oh for sure well especially because it also adds more bodies against the blob as well because there's (laughs) that like brilliant chase through the sewer and then the uh like the government agents get like completely toast and like one of them comes back like well wit infected but then the other one like has like total ptsd about like the whole thing almost immediately so you're just like okay like this this threat is bigger than like you like whatever this conflict is it's bigger than you so um no i think that that whole conflict is great and like you said it's very very much of the time of like you know distrust in the government especially like and i know you're a big you know ufo and like you like those sort of like true crime stories and so this is like that was definitely more of a post 1950s like Mm -hmm. element so that definitely like plays in here um and it's it's done really well like like this movie is very uh it's very sleek very entertaining gets in gets out like there's not really any fat in the movie um you know they expand on the ideas of the original they get to do things with the blob that they just could not do in 1958 um so it's 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 really a good time um like i i was ashamed that it took me so long to to finally watch the remake of the blob so glad to have excuse to do it and I'm glad that you got to, got to watch it. Uh, I, I think just from a, a storytelling standpoint, from a craft standpoint, just all all of the the miniatures and the uh, yes. the, the composite shots and uh, creative ways. I love um, the we the the guy who gets me good. Um, I there's this <laughs> shot where he's like reaching into her shirt, and then the blob has been just sort of consuming her from the inside. So it attacks him, but it just like it it spills on him like in a, like in a viscous like gooey thing like hits him in the face and runs up his arm. And the shot is really excellent because all they did is they took the car set and turned it on its side and they dumped a bucket of the goo on him. Yeah. But like from the way that it's edited together, it looks like it just jumps out of her shirt, runs up his arm, and like slams across his face. And it's like little things that they do by turning the set or you know putting it into a, a mat or uh, uh the the operator at the theater who gets uh, melted up into the ceiling and he's like falling apart like oh, so good like just like great animatronics and just like amazing attention to detail and you can just tell that there's 
this amount of awe and and glee and joy that's coming from the filmmakers when they're putting this movie together like that was their number one priority is is the movie has to be fun and it it is a blast and if you have also if you're like ryan and have not been able to watch the blob and bring it into your life up until this point please watch it this halloween season it's a perfect pick it is let let the blob open your heart to the blob let let him in <laughs> yes i also sort of like because the the biggest comparison i had really because i hadn't seen either version so i immediately thought of it watching both versions and it makes sense because of course sam raimi's a, a big horror person mm-hmm. you know made the even started in horror with evil dead it reminded me of the opening of spider-man 3 when the symbiote comes to earth it's very much exactly shot and ah. framed exactly the way that the blob comes to earth it in very much both is. versions so um yeah so i guess what i'm saying is i'd actually like a true uh horror tinged uh venom movie based on the blob and not whatever the hell they're doing right now <laughs> no, I, yeah whatever what the sony's nice <laughs> whatever please please not coming to a good bed what near you um, no no i mean unless we absolutely have to <laughs> so <laughs> those are we got to get into the several hundred episodes and we're <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel to come back to the Venom movies. Yes, um, absolutely. But instead of, of taking a dump on Venom, let's take a dump on 1998's Psycho. Oh, my boy's best friend is his mother. She just... Uh, she just goes a little mad sometimes. Which I say that, and I know that you're not about to take a dump. So, um, I, I we'll see how this conversation goes. We, we'll see how it goes. I, I I didn't hate this movie. I guess maybe that's what like front out. Like it's a bad movie or it's an odd movie, mm. but I didn't hate it. But I I found myself often perplexed and frustrated with the experience of this movie because it, it it was just like I and I had to do a little research. Um, I know you probably have a synopsis, but like, I mean, Psycho really needs no introduction. It's, it's Psycho. I'd it's, be surprised if anybody's listening to this podcast and they're like, "What's Psycho?" Yeah, it's, and like if you if you haven't seen Psycho, you've seen Psycho. Like you know, you know, <laughs> you know the plot devices. You know Norman Bates. Like it, right. it's it's really like there's it's it's just one of those movies that's ingrained forever in the pop culture lexicon. So, um. But I had to look into this because I hadn't, I didn't know. I was like, I don't know if Gus Van Zant went to Universal and said he wanted to do this, or if Universal and Imagine, uh, which is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's production company, went to Gus Van Zant because this came out uh, two years after, or maybe one year, maybe just maybe just one year. Uh, I forgot to look up the year of Goodwill Hunting. Uh, I think it was actually yeah, one year. Goodwill Hunting was ninety seven, so just one year after Goodwill Hunting, which of course like. You know, Gus Van Zandt had been working for years, like Dark Star Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, had been working on a ton of independent movies, but of course, Goodwill Hunting was a huge hit, made a lot of money, won a bunch of Oscars, um, or won a Oscar, and was nominated for quite a few. Um, actually, wait, it won two. Uh, sorry, one screenplay, and Robin Williams won mm-hmm. uh, for it. But um, needless to say, Guy had some clout, and went to Universal and pitched this idea of doing a shot-for-shot remake of psycho and at the time universal was like why and gus van zandt was like why not and i guess universal's reaction was 
Yeah, he's got a point there, I guess. Uh, yeah, so, why not? Sure. I, and so, uh, I mean, so, like, Gus Van Zandt's pretty committed to experiments that he's done, uh, you know, especially on, like, smaller movies that would come after the fact, like like Last Days or, or Paranoid Park. But, like, I, I don't know what the whole, like, purpose of doing this was. And I think that's what I found frustrating because I'm like, it's not badly made from a technical standpoint. It's well-directed. Um, it's also well shot. The DP of this movie is Christopher Doyle, who's primarily Wong Kar Wai's cinematographer. So movie looks good. Um, good cast. I, I inspired cast actually. Um, but I, I also found it strange. I think the one thing I found also really strange, but like, cause Gus Van Zandt has such, has his own identity as a filmmaker. So by doing this, it strips any identity that he could possibly bring to the movie, which is a shame because I felt like the one aspect you could have really brought to it because I think that there's there's always been sort of an, uh, a, like a queer analysis about um, Norman Bates anyway. Like that's always been sort of under the surface of the original Psycho. But you have Gus Van Zandt, uh, who's, who's a queer filmmaker. Um, Anne Hayes, who plays Marion, uh, R.I.P. She sadly passed away earlier this year. Um queer actress so it's just like you have this lens that you could frame psycho and actually maybe do something different with it and make it worth doing a remake in the first place and it's just a shot for shot remake of the original and they even oh drove me nuts they sorry i'm going on way too long i think even more than the compositions that drove me nuts because i'm like oh that like that's cute or that's well done like it's cool kind of like seeing this as a as an experiment unnecessary but at least interesting but what drove me nuts was that they kept the bernard herman score Mm -hmm. um because the score uh, any score can also like you know raise or lower your movie i mean could definitely raise your movie if it's a good score and obviously bernard herman's score for psycho is an all-timer but like in this context knowing that i'm not seeing the images that i'm used to to that music was like just just frying my brain in a way that i just couldn't do it like there's a there's a great story that uh brian de palma tells in the de palma documentary because before herman passed the last two movies that he scored were taxi driver and uh obsession for for brian de palma and of course when you're editing uh, a movie um you have a placeholder score until the actual score is completed and so they bring in Bernard Herrmann, and he's, like, old at this point, uh, to start scoring Obsession. And De Palma had used Herman's Psycho score as the, like, placeholder track. Mm-hmm. And Herman's just like, stop it! Stop it! I can't hear that ever again! Like, he was just freaking out about it. And that's kind of how I felt throughout this movie. I'm just like, I can't do it! Like, why didn't you get a different track like uh, it's so frustrating like they got danny elfman to do like some rearranging but like Mm -hmm. it's still herman's score so it's just like it's just so strange but i'm sorry i this is your pick and i went way too long i just i didn't hate this movie i just found myself like really just perplexed by by the whole thing uh i I don't know i didn't hate this movie but I, i think it's because i love psycho and so then like it ultimately the movie is psycho and so it's like i mean i still you know like that movie so much that like it can't you know completely taint my experience of this movie but just like you're saying i mean according to imdb so take this with a grain of salt the estimated budget for the movie was 60 million dollars 
And it's one of those things where it's like, why are you going to get this cast? Why are you going to spend this money? Why are you going to faithfully recreate all the sets and use the Bergman score and do all this stuff and just do the same movie? Like, you, you have to understand that the original Psycho still exists and that by remaking the movie, your movie is going to be compared to it. So why aren't you going an extra mile to, like, change... It? Like, they use lines from mm-hmm. the original movie. They, they are, and like you're saying, compositions, but not just compositions, like like uh, the, the, cam- the, the camera on sticks shooting from the same frame, like motion in the frame. And, and like, they, they do the same uh, crawling up the stairs up into the bird's eye view at the top of the stairs landing as Norman comes out carrying his dead mother. Like, they, they're recreating all of it. But then, the stuff that they did change is so out of place and baffling that it like it made it so much worse for me and like one of those examples being in the original psycho norman um uh puts uh, um marion crane into the the hotel room the motel room that's right next to the office because he has a picture he can take down off the wall and he can watch her undress and change and he does in this movie they do that again but they just add in sounds of Norman masturbating loudly as he's like grunting and like shaking in the frame and he just jacks off until he comes. And it's like, okay, well, we could kind of probably deduce that either Norman in the original 1961 was either doing that or was, you know, cataloging some things in the spank bank and then was going to go up to the house and do that. Like, we understand why he was watching Marion undress. So to like, it's just so weird to reshoot an entire movie and then be like, okay, but the 30 seconds of footage that I'm going to add is Vince Vaughn masturbating. Or the different like insert shots uh, of like, like nature footage, uh, which is when, like, yeah. When like uh, William H. Macy gets his face slashed and then yeah. there's like cut to like random animals and you're like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, some of the, those choices are, are really strange. And I think the the movie that uh, I, I also thought of, and I would have liked this more, but they don't, I, I feel like he doesn't even commit to this. Um, and I think, again, I think, you know, I mean, Gus Van Zandt's had a pretty illustrious career at this point that he's he's acknowledged like, yeah, that, that this was an experiment that didn't pan out. So I'm pretty sure any of these criticisms are, are moot. But it reminded me at first of the um, of the Boz Lerman Romeo and Juliet because we get the title card in this movie that says it's 1998 when the movie takes place, and um, but like you said, lines are used. Uh, I wanted to note that like both the production design, the costuming design, and mm-hmm. the cars that are used are fairly anachronistic. Like they're pretty yeah. faithful to the 1960, and so that's why I thought of the the Boz Lerman Romeo and Juliet because it's contemporary, but they kept the Shakespeare language, uh, which obviously is much predates Psycho, but like still it. it it has that it's that similar concept and so right. um so i thought about that movie i was like oh okay that's like kind of an interesting angle that i that i brought but then and not to besmirch her cuz she just just does just fine with the material that she's given but when uh, after marion is killed and, and lila walks in 
and played by Julianne Moore in this movie, mm-hmm. she looks like she walked right out of the set of Melrose Place. Like everybody else looks like they like their 1960s counterpart in even in the production design, but like her outfit, her haircut, she's got a Walkman in her mm-hmm. ears. Like it is like it sticks out like a sore thumb, and it is a bizarre choice in this. Like everything was pretty kind of consistent in that realm, and then here's one character that's just. Not at all. It's such a bizarre choice. And it, it makes me wonder what the direction was. Because, I mean, like, in that scene as well, she's going off. She's almost got a Boston accent. She almost reminded me of her character in 30 Rock. But um, the the William H. Macy shows up, and he's like the private eye detective who's looking for Marion. And he comes in, and his blocking is straight up the same blocking as it is in the 1960 movie. Like, he's leaning mm-hmm. in the right places. He's doing everything to an exact T, shadowing the original performance. Yeah. So then it's just like, are you telling different actors different things? Is that the experiment? And then seeing how they end up? Because, like, th- like you pointed out already, Julianne Moore's doing her own thing. Like, she's saying the lines and hitting her marks, but, like... William H. Macy is robotic, like, it's a small world ride, running along a rail to the right spots he needs to be to perfectly mimic the original performance. So it's like, I don't know if he just got a different assignment, and that's what the experiment was, but it, it's it's little things like that where it becomes distracting. Yeah. Where it's like, you're, you're, you're mimicking the first movie, or the original movie, well enough to where I can think of nothing but the original movie, but then things come in that are just slightly off enough. Where it's like, why didn't you just just run in that direction? That would have been much more interesting as a movie. It would have been. And I, I was already minorly distracted because yeah, I was already sort of somewhat distracted by the uh, the mini Boogie Nights reunion we get. Yeah. Julianne Moore <laughs> and uh, William H. Macy and Philip Baker Hall uh, shows yeah. up later in the movie. So, uh, which Boogie Nights came out the year before this. So it was just like <laughs> everyone with the big indie hits sort of just ended up somehow <laughs> to the Psycho remake. Um, well, and, but... and Flea was uh, yes. the, 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 uh, cash, the cashier there. And uh, so, I was just thinking of Big Lebowski as well, and I was like, "What the hell?" Which was is the same year as this? Yeah, we don't <laughs> we don't believe in anything. Um, I, Norman, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's so it's just so bizarre, like the the, right. the the whole thing, and it's just like it's just surreal because you're like, I know these frames, I know mm-hmm. these lines, I know this score, and here's some very beautifully conjured images and actors i like all doing this but it's just like it's like a living wax museum almost Mm -hmm. where it's just like it's just so so bizarre and like i mean it kind of goes into your theory about it like william h macy's performance specifically being like uh it's the small world ride where it's like it's like that it's like it, it would be like going through like i don't know if you ever did back in the day if you ever went to universal studios and did like the backlot tour i feel like this would be like like doing that like where it's like if you do the backlot tour they would have like like bruce from jaws like pop out from the water mm-hmm. um they had it because i i loved the movie as a kid i still love the movie i think my favorite part is they had uh they had the wall from the truman show that he runs oh, into yeah. at the end uh, on the tour but like <clears throat> this feels like that where it's like you'd be walking through a tour and having people mimic lines from like movies that you love right and and that's sort of like how the whole thing plays out and it's just like and again it, it it's 
it's interesting because you know that if Universal decided they wanted to remake Psycho, it probably would have ended up like maybe even worse. Like it would have been mm-hmm. like maybe like the 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 remake of the remake of the thing, or I guess it's a prequel, the the twenty eleven the thing. I've never seen it, but. Uh, I've just heard it's famously pretty terrible. Um, so it's like, it, I, it could have ended up worse like that. And so it's like, because Van Zant wanted to do it, a filmmaker of note and a filmmaker with some class, it's not like in a front, but it's just like, why? That's the central right. question. It's just like, why? Why do it? Um, well, and it is important to note, I mean, like the, this is 1998, so we're on the tail end of slashers. I mean, of course... Wes Craven kind of blew the doors off again a little bit uh, a couple of years before with Scream coming out. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, sort of a, a treatise on the slasher genre as it had been up until that point. Um, and Psycho is, it's a proto slasher. It's not really structured like that. But I mean, they, I, I feel like if someone wanted to say like, hey, slashers are popular again, let's remake something that's based off of our catalog of IP like psycho if somebody tried to make it like a a slasher like halloween or even like scream or something like that it wouldn't work because the the slayings in psycho are not like that that's not it like it's not about the kills or the framework of the kills it really hinges on the performances and it hinges on the MacGuffin, like the the excellent turn of the of the stealing of the money and is she going to get away from the cops and being chased by James Remar like all of that ultimately doesn't matter because she was snuffed out in an incident and like that that is in itself its own level of horror of how quickly you can fall victim uh, to somebody who's seemingly just a normal dude um that is what makes that movie work and so i think what you're talking about the glut of the movies that came out after scream of of being i know you did last summer urban legends um all those shit heaps if it would have gone that way i think it would have been a much worse movie yeah uh than than what psycho is but for me it's it's mostly just very um insulting to see such a, a beloved classic um done uh to a a, such a faithful degree that you're just more like what just leave it alone you just dug up i mean really this movie is like uh uh, norman's mom they just (laughs) propped a corpse in a chair in the corner and filmed and they're like ah we can't let it die it'll never it'll never be laid to rest well at least hitchcock's daughter did give the sign off of the movie she thought her dad would be flattered by the invitation which he he may have i may have it's hard to say but yeah like you said i i just don't think there's there's no reason to do it but like it could have been worse and and i do want to before we move into our our what movie i do want to point out that you're like you're right where like the 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 slayings is not the point of the original psycho um and it would have been worse if they went that route but they already did do that route because there's like three sequels to the original psycho (laughs) which i do a good bad what episode oh okay i've never seen any of the sequels but like but they came out it was like a weird feedback loop because they came out way later after halloween came out and the glut of the the slasher so they're Mm -hmm. like okay we got some money to be made here so let's uh let's let's do it so the second one is actually pretty good uh okay but that we can save that for another episode the one final thing i wanted to touch on in this one uh in terms of performance uh 
Vince Vaughn is not a very good Norman Bates. Yeah, um, it makes me wonder, like, I, I had a hard time parsing, for me personally, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but, no, like, I, I, I had a hard time parsing, like, if I saw this in 1998 with, like, my brain now, would I have bought it? Like, it's it's harder now, you know, after, like, Dodgeball and Anchorman and Old School, and, like, you know, he sort of found, the, uh, Wedding Crashers sort of found that niche uh, mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I guess he was already doing that because Swingers came out two years before this. So, like, he'd yeah. already been sort of that fast-talking guy. But then again, I did like him. I didn't like season two of True Detective, but I liked him in it. And I liked a Brawl in Subblock 99. So it's mm-hmm. like, I, I I don't think he's a good Norman Bates. I think I have to agree. But I, I couldn't parse whether or not that was my perception of Vince Vaughn or if it's really not a, a good performance. Um, it, was, it was sort of hard to parse that in my mind. I thought he went overly childish which like we we know that norman has got a bit of like you know arrested development he's obviously I mean, he well the movie's called psycho he's, he's got something going on but he in i mean anthony perkins portrayal in the first in you know the i keep saying the first in the original psycho uh he's he doesn't come across to me as as somebody who's a child trapped in a man's body he's he's got a nervous energy but he still carries himself. He's very you know, well-spoken. And he will have, like, breaks in his sort of consciousness. Like, when uh, she sort of suggests, like, you know, your mother should maybe find somebody who can help her. And, and he starts to turn angry. And we see that there's another side to, to Norman. But there's choices that, that Vince Vaughn is making in this movie. Um, and it, it might just be Vince Vaughn himself, but he's he's like his laugh, his chuckle is very childish and childlike. I'm just like, <laughs> like it's very uh, giddy uh, and joyful. And there are moments in the movie where he goes and he'll sit down and he'll like slink into his lap and he'll turn his legs over and like rest his feet on his ankles, like with his feet turned in, like a kid would sit like crisscross applesauce on the ground when they're going to play with their toys mm-hmm. and it's just a choice that he's making which is another one of the minor differences that's not something that you saw in anthony perkins portrayal in the first movie that is just far enough in the wrong direction where it's like every single time you make a choice to try and differ even slightly from what you're remaking it's the wrong choice it it, it tarnishes the original message or feeling or a feeling that we know works you did you did the bad thing um <laughs> this is the bad place <laughs> right yeah exactly. so no i think that's a, no that's a valid point because he does because anthony perkins and it, that was another hard thing where you're like anthony perkins you know like he's convincing that enough that there isn't anything wrong with him until there is Right. Whereas, like, the second you see Vince Vaughn, you're like, uh, yeah, leave. something's... Yeah, leave. Get out of there. Don't, don't go to this hotel. <laughs> Just keep driving. Right. <laughs> so, um, no, for sure. Oh, God, if you want to unhinged... Sorry, to, this, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you want to unhinged Anthony Perkins' performance, Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion, uh, highly, oh. highly recommend. Great sleaze uh, 80s movie with uh, with uh, Anthony Perkins. So Okay. Maybe no, coming yeah. soon to a good bad what near you because it's certainly something. It. Um, sure, I'll take more Perkins. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, um, yeah, okay, well, if we want to get into, uh, we want to talk some more about questionable casting uh, and bad performances, 
uh, 13, uh, third 13 and ghosts, um, from 2001. I represent the estate of your uncle Cyrus. We have an uncle Cyrus? Cyrus recorded this message six weeks ago. He asked it to be played for you in the event of his death. Arthur, I've instructed my lawyer to deliver my last will and testament. A key? A key to what? A key to your new house. The only thing worse than being trapped in a house with a ghost. This house is not a house. We're in the middle of the machine. Powered by the dead. Is being trapped in a house with 13 ghosts. Can I rely on you not to get me killed? I guarantee nothing. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It, it makes me laugh every time. It's it's absurd. <laughs> I it, like the the whole. I mean, we can start there. The whole leet lettering that happened with movies in the early to to mid two thousand. It started so. with seven. I mean, that's right. really where it kicked off. Which like seven's a great movie. So you kind of like give it a Forgive pass. It. You're yeah. like the 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 num the 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 titling is dumb, but you're like ah, but it's seven. It's a great movie. But right. then you're just like okay, this needs to this this <laughs> needs to stop. <laughs> this shouldn't apply to a remake of a William Castle movie. I'm no. sorry. <laughs> so, oh, Which man. maybe we can we can start there. So I'll I'll just really quickly do the the synopsis of of the movie. Uh, so. Uh, when an estranged uncle is killed in an accident, Arthur, Tony Shalhoub, inherits his home. Soon after moving in with his family, Arthur, with the help of medium Dennis, played by Matthew Lillard, learns that his late uncle had a hobby of catching dangerous spirits, which are now loose in the house. Um, so this is another situation where the, the, the modern remake is taking elements from the first movie and then you know upgrading them or changing them to to remain faithful but be stand apart because this movie is not really like thir- like William Castle's 13 Ghosts. No, the initial conceit is it's you know a family fallen on hard times for one reason or another inherit a ha- inherit a house from a mm-hmm. wealthy distant relative and then the house is Haunted, haunted because of right. the the obsessions of the previous owner like the the framework is there mm-hmm. um but it's like very loose it, it, and i i noted this when i like logged this on letterbox this is more a remake uh r-rated remake of casper the 1995 <laughs> version of casper like if you think about it with like the sort of like uh uh like unfinished business aspect that comes mm-hmm. in with the family and their and their their, their departed mother i was like this is just this is like bill pullman <laughs> Casper, like it's so. Uh, it's a There's odd more boobs in this, though. So, oh, oh well, yeah. That's uh, that's 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 uh, goes without <laughs> saying. I mean, I guess Ghost Kathy Moriarty is pretty chesty and in, in oh, chestier sure. than the, the, the uh, Casper movie than I recalled as a kid uh, watching that as an adult. But uh, yeah, but yeah, overtly here for sure. <laughs> um, well, and. I mean the 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 elements, and we can kind of get into them. I mean, like William Castle. I I need to go back and watch the rest of his uh, filmography. Uh, what an interesting, interesting dude. Dude, he's um, he was a trailblazer. Not like the best filmmaker, but like yeah, I don't know. Did you ever see? Um, and if not, it's I was gonna put it on an episode any anyway, but hundred percent going to if you haven't. Have you seen Joe Dante's matinee? With, I have John, not. with John Goodman. Oh shit. Okay. You have to for number one. It's great. Maybe my okay. favorite Joe Dante movie. And I love Gremlins one and two. Um, right. but 
it's basically John Goodman basically plays William Castle. It's like not him, but it's it's basically him. And right. like he's always coming up with a gimmick. Uh like like that and that was the thing with 13 Ghosts, which I gotta credit the remake, not to jump around. I like that the remake did bring that glasses thing into the fold. Um mm-hmm. because they're wearing like basically 3D glasses in the original 13 Ghosts because the audience wore that. I forgot what mm-hmm. it was called. It was like Spookovision or yeah. something, but he was always coming up with these crazy gimmicks. Yeah, the seat rumbling. Like anything you if you go to like a 40X screen at like a Regal, like William Castle was the pioneer of right. any of that stuff. So super fascinating filmmaker. Um, and then the remake, of course, is a production company called Dark Castle, uh, that was started by Joel Silver and mm-hmm. I think Robert Zemeckis, at least he's, mm-hmm. he's noted as a producer on yep. this movie. Um, and I think the first one they did was the remake of House on Haunted Hill. Um, so like it started as like souped up remakes of William Castle movies and then it kind of turned into others cause they did the House of Wax remake, which of course is more of a remake of Tourist Trap than the actual mm-hmm. House of Wax um they did orphan uh which is a movie that i've sung the praises of on this uh podcast uh but they did a bunch of the, they did splice which i think we just talked about <laughs> off mic um your mileage may vary on splice but um yeah but they did they but they did these basically souped up remakes and so 13 ghosts is a direct remake uh, i mean again loosely but it is based on a william castle movie right um but uh i think I want to hear more about your like history with the movie because I think both of us have somewhat a, a, of a history for this movie, and so like I I will, I'll definitely want to hear more about that. Uh, it might be the exact same history. I mean, like so. as I've said before, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies, so then I would watch them at Nick's house when I stayed the night over there. And this was a sleepover movie of we were allowed to rent rated R movies when I stayed over there. And yeah, the, we loved the shit out of this movie. Uh, I remember on the, the, the DVD, there was a, a special features where all of the ghosts that are featured in the movie had a backstory that like explained in, in like along with illustrations, like inked illustrations in a book explaining like what led to their deaths and why they're so angry and, and like the that's one of the things about this movie you brought it up about the glasses uh you know bringing back the spook vision it's more integrated in this movie where the people in the movie wear glasses so that they can see the ghosts in real life and if you're not wearing the glasses then you can't see the ghosts which was a play on how william castle's original movie went uh the the all of the ghosts were shot red shifted and so then the audience wore red tinted glasses and they could see the ghosts but if you took them off they were invisible on film which was i guess a cool experience uh for moviegoers in 1961 but on top of that just the design of the house and of the ghosts themselves um super creative uh it's it's very cool i mean it, it concerning the movie itself didn't have a huge budget but you can see where their their dollars went oh. and they it had to the right things. Pretty big budget for this kind of movie. It was forty-two million. That's, for this kind of movie, that's sure. insane. Blumhouse would do this for like peanuts now if this got <laughs> made. Like forty-two million. That's that's absurd. And I I, I do want to like close the loop on uh, last week's episode because I I mentioned when we talked about the new Hellraiser that there was a movie that we'd be talking about that were, was reminiscent of the House of the New Hellraiser and it's. The remake of this 13 one, Ghosts. Yeah. yeah, definitely heavy 13 Ghost vibes. I'm not the only person who's pointed that out. I've seen that here and there, but it, it's 100% accurate mm. to, to those who pointed it out. Um, 
Yeah, similar to you. I mean, the history is almost exactly the same. I think the only difference is, like, I think at this age, like, with, like, my parents, it was, like, a case-by-case basis of, like, what R-rated movies we could watch. And uh, I think I maybe even said this before. They let me watch horror movies because they weren't well-versed, which was, again, super funny because I couldn't watch, like, American Pie, but there was almost more sex in these movies than there were in any of the, like, boner comedies. So, but I got, we got the green light to do 13 Ghosts. And so we did it at in my house because I remember watching it in our living room. Um, definitely scared the crap out of me as a, as, a, as a young one, for sure, as, like, you know, 12 years old or whenever I saw this, 11 or 12. Um, and... I do love that design of the house. We should also like the design of the ghosts as well. Like each one has a unique design that like, the time was clearly taken to, to do it. Um, we should like, you know, be remiss to not mention it's Greg Nicotero and um, right. uh, Robert Kurtzman um, who, who, you know, who did like, I mean, who Robert Kurtzman, the walking did, dead, the walking dead yeah. from dust till dawn. Um, so it's like, they have a, a pretty, pretty strong, pedigree there so all the ghosts look great the production design of the house looks great i love that they brought the glasses back um Mm -hmm. but the story yep (laughs) uh is (laughs) (laughs) i i will say they did one thing clever and and the thing is i wouldn't have thought this was clever in 2000 late 2001 or early 2002 whenever i saw this movie but like watching it in conjunction with the remake i at least thought was clever i guess Mm -hmm. somewhat spoilers for both versions of 13 ghosts if you haven't seen them and you're interested go go check them but as we know in the original 13 ghosts the lawyer is like behind like the nefarious like things that are happening in 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 the movie um and so it was nice that the lawyer gets off pretty quickly in the first like and in an minutes. awesome way it's the best death in the movie it's so good <laughs> it's it's a little bit undermined by a flat delivery of a one-liner but it's mm-hmm. still like it's still so cool when that glass like, shuts and then you're like and then just slides down the glass like the and whole then, well, yeah, as you're like slowly kind of coming to terms with because like the he's wearing the ghost glasses which snap and fall off his face and then you see his tie slides off his neck and falls down to the ground so you can see like things that would have been bisected by those doors closing they come off first before you see him start to slide and then yeah it's like a specimen on on a on a, a, a piece of uh i don't know what you call those oh i uh what microscope I... uh, microscope slide yeah there we go um <laughs> and that's also the only kill in the movie that i can think of that is not horribly butchered to fucking death by the editor oh my god dude the editor did the editor just snort a line of coke before before each cut like it's it's like they had uh, a, a adobe premiere open and then they just like hit the little cut tool and then like cut 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 like it's just like it it's so obnoxious they're like dipped to whites and stuff like like the, the just random like the camera will remain steady in the shot and they will cut the footage with with dips to white so just like yes. flash white several times but like the the nothing has changed in the frame or anything so they're just like for no reason i'm just gonna add 15 cuts yeah it's ridiculous and and this was indicative of the times like i don't want to just like mm. di- like just drag this editor and this director under the mud because this was happening a lot in other like movies even a movie I like and a filmmaker I like, even the first Saw, there's the, mm-hmm. like, it's not the whole movie, which this is the whole movie. Every right. single thing, every single spooky moment is like, <laughs> like, uh, like crazy yep. edit. 
like Saw only has it like once or twice, but there's like the 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 one where the he's got the trap on, uh, or it's the the girl Amanda mm-hmm. who ends up being in two and Saw two and three, and it's like like she's gotta get the key, and it's like it's doing that like crazy edit of the camera three sixty shot around yeah. it, yeah, exactly. But um, but at least there's coverage. At least it's like they're covering it and then cutting between. Whereas this one's just like I don't what am I even supposed it's to? It's all over the at? goddamn place, and it like. It doesn't help because, I mean, we've mentioned that the design of the house is pretty cool. The design of the house itself is, like, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, everything is glass. It's just glass panes. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, handwritten Latin on the walls and, and, like, symbols and what. It's, like, containment spells to keep the ghosts in the house. Which is really cool. And they had to get very creative in order to move the camera around the space to shoot things without catching their reflections. Right. Um, there, there's sections of the movie where you can see the camera very slowly sort of moving down halls and uh, just kind of getting uh, environment shots. And that's all footage that they did for camera tests early on. Uh, mm. Showing like where they'd be able to move the camera without catching their reflections. And then they had the footage so then they used it um, for I guess weird inserts of downtime throughout the course of the movie. Uh, they they didn't do anything to like add to the story, but every once in a while they'll just cut to long uh like trucking shots down a hallway, and you'll hear like ghosts and stuff laughing in the background, which it didn't really bother me. But like they, you'll see where they they had to to do that in the movie. Totally, and it, it, again, it's and it's, it's creative. Like I can't I can't mm. knock them for for it's it's a really creative conceit. I just. The, the problem is it's like the movie has a, a good enough setup or at least it gets you understanding into what's happening of like here's family hall falling on hard times like we said tony shalhoub and um his family um his wife was was killed in a fire and so they're on like financial hardship they've moved a bunch of times and uh, which was also a weird thing in the movie. So it's like they're on hard times, but they're able to hire a, a like a, a nanny essentially. They or, live in a like... big ass apartment, and they have a, a live in maid that they pay for and shit. Yeah, and yeah, and there's just like there's all these past due notices and stuff up on the corkboard, and it's like Tony Shalhoub, you have like an adult daughter. I don't know how old yes. Shane Elizabeth is supposed to be in this movie, but like. She can watch your kid. She definitely is old enough to have a license. Like she can oh, take yeah. him to school if that's a like. Yeah, this is one I of don't those. Know why. She wasn't thirty five, but this is one of those thirty five year old teenager examples of like, right. especially because the same year, this was the same year that Jan Silent Bob Strike Back came out, um, which she is in and and right. adult. So um, that's weird. Uh, it's yes. just a weird, odd choice um, for sure. So that's strange but like you know it sets up what they need to do um and but then like once they get in it's just it's just that editing nonsense like there's no real good story it's like whatsoever you get the exposition from matthew lillard who's going bug-eyed and and god bless matthew lillard i mean he's trying he's trying to do something i don't know what it is but he's certainly trying in this movie to to it works for me man get it matthew I mean, I like Matthew Lillard, but I just, I don't know, I found myself exhausted. He's also, he inexplicably is dressed like Nick Cage in Snake Eyes for most of the movie. (laughs) Like, I'm like, why are you dressed like this? That's a very good point, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And like, like under his coveralls, I guess, he was wearing that full suit underneath the, the, like, handyman coveralls he wore for his cover when he showed up exactly but it's like weird but then it's all like things like he's doling out the exposition and then you know how like 
uh be- and there's like the other medium character who worked with uh with the uncle um mm-hmm. who we should know is played by f murray abraham who's a regular with wes anderson and um he's in uh, uh inside lewin davis he's a great character actor been in a bunch mm-hmm. of things um but it's like we know we know that woman is like in cahoots with the uncle like it's like clear from the second that she shows up unexpectedly to matthew lower's character surprise like, okay well something's up with that character like right almost immediately and so it's like there's no other than the cool design which we get you know throughout like there's no tension for any of this stuff like no. and and the movie doesn't slow down enough to try and even let that family drama like seep in and then the family split up for like pretty much mm-hmm. the whole movie from the time that uh lawyer guy gets sliced like everyone's in like different rooms of the house like trying yes. like like a like a maze like a rat in a maze which again conceptually is cool but i was like i don't care about any of this no well and so like we'd sort of mentioned in in the original the lawyer was responsible for the nefarious things um spoiler alert the lawyer was responsible for murdering the uncle in the original that's um, right yep with Did a like trick out. bed it was it was the stupidest explanation i've ever seen for a, a murder he could have just killed him with a pillow but there was like some hydraulic press that was made into the <laughs> dude's bed that like suffocated it it's the dumbest shit ever hey, but basically William castle had to make it into a gimmick it's somehow. gotta be a gimmick yeah <laughs> there was a hydraulic press that was above the audience in the theater and it would come down and, and crush them i wouldn't be um, surprised <laughs> but um the lawyer basically killed him and then he wants to find the, his stash of money. The uncle's exorbitantly rich, and, and the young child that's in the house is able to talk to the ghost. So the lawyer is talking to the child to be like, hey, you know, what are the ghosts saying? They're telling you where the money is at. And then by the end of the movie, the ghost of the uncle kills the lawyer using that same hydraulic press bed. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, the uncle has, uh, I mean, spoilers for 13 ghosts we've already put them but more whatever we'll do it again the uncle has staged his own death in in a a pretty cool little scene in my opinion pretty cool little scene at the beginning of the movie at the junkyard where they go to get the juggernaut which is like this eight foot tall giant killer uh ghost who's like breaking people's spines in half and, and hucking people around um again like shot in 24 frames uh there's flashes to white they're cutting all over the goddamn place it's ugly as fuck but the concept is neat yes and in all of that havoc the uncle quote-unquote dies which is where the inheritance comes in um but it like very early on to us the audience it's obvious that something's kind of fucky about that whole situation that we're not being told about and like you said we get into the house the family is almost immediately split up. The young child, the young boy gets lost in the basement and mm-hmm. then everyone else separates and they're having their own misadventures with the ghosts. And the whole movie is about them like getting separated and then getting back together and moving from one place to another. The The new lady shows up uh, to, to dump some exposition. But basically all the exposition that they're dumping are about the ghosts in the house. About the ghosts in the house. There's ghosts in the house. Did you know there's ghosts in the house? Well, this is this ghost. <laughs> and then there's another ghost. And, oh, no, you should be really scared about that ghost. And it's it, none of this is discovered organically by mm-hmm. 
the audience or the characters we're more or less told about the ghost and then the next scene that ghost shows up like hey be afraid of the jackal he's really fucking crazy you know fuck you up and then the next scene there's the jackal and then he's attacking him and it just kind of repeats these steps and the whole time we're going like well something's fucky with the uncle what's going on with the uncle and they sort of save it for a reveal at the end of the movie that like ha he i faked my death and i was playing this whole thing and it's like well yeah the audience got this 30 minutes yeah, ago we're 20 steps ahead of you 13 yeah goes. this isn't a surprise <laughs> i would like you should have been doling out this information like drip feeding it over time and and maybe had the characters react to it or like learn something and it's a revelation and it get like the, the what's on display here is the ghosts that's like the meat and potatoes of the whole movie yeah which is not good i mean like for, for, it's fun the design is neat or whatever but it's like what we talked about before where the movie itself is an effects reel for greg nicotero and robert kurtzman which great job on the ghost effects man but like as far as like direction, editing, yeah, anything outside like of the craft of the movie, it's like a sci-fi original. Oh yeah, definitely. Outside of like you said, the craft and the budget, like this was made for right. forty-two million, so and it's up there. Like the money's on the screen. I can't can't say it's not for sure. Right. Um. But yeah, it's 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 and and it's really telling that this filmmaker like really he only directed two movies. He directed this. He directed Ghost Ship. Uh, which yeah, I can't remember. I think it was the year after. Um, yeah, which is funny because Ghost Ship has that like famous, like amazing scene where the the where like the bow breaks and and the yeah, line the, comes in and just slices everybody. <laughs> the the best and only good scene in the whole movie. Is it's the first true. Five minutes. Ghost Ship also has uh you know going back to our conversation about the one about like knowing when movies are set. Ghost Ghost Ship has uh. Uh, surprise mud vein needle drops so you you know oh yeah <laughs> it is a is that i i stand yeah demons. it's not falling which i mean i guess saw 2 also has it but it was sort of like written for the movie i think it's uh oh. forget to remember but anyway um i digress um i feel like we're we're sliding into a new metal conversation though it's probably <laughs> get out getting close to getting out i i guess the last maybe thing of note that is of the movie plot wise, which again doesn't really go anywhere, but it's was my inspiration for comparing it to Casper is one of the 13 ghosts is the mother. Um, Mm -hmm. so there, there's a sort of like, you know, like I said, unfinished business, like letting go and, and being able to move on. And so she could pass on, pass through as opposed to, you know, being trapped in this little like ghost hell, you know, but it's like, again, the characters are cardboard anyway. So it's just right. It's just, just little, it's doesn't mean anything unfortunately um it just well and i think like it's not written well so it like it there's it it, like you know it was sort of doomed from the start where like we're we're really relying on this emotional beat to hit the audience and for them to fit and it it was just never going to happen because it's written like shit but i do want to point out as well i tony shalhoub is very miscast in oh yeah this movie very like, much miscast I, I i i was sort of distracted almost from the start um you know because it's like i mean i like him as an actor but it's like yeah I, you know i know him for monk prim- primarily um, right even though i've watched a lot of monk but i know the show uh like through through osmosis and i think my my wife likes the show and and from pain and gain which we talked about on this mm-hmm. podcast where he's a total sleazeball like <laughs> you know right. he's 
it's just it, it having to be that sort of like loving like dad like on the, like i just i don't know it just didn't didn't fit i i don't think well and like he's he's still got the the neurotic tics and stuff of a character like monk or even right. like that sleazy character from pain and gain but then the he spends the majority of the movie uh, horribly annoyed with the fact that he has a family like <laughs> he's like yelling at his son because he's leaving the toys around and uh, he like yells at the maid he's like that's what i pay you for and hey everybody stay together and quit doing that and quit doing that and what oh, do you mean there's ghosts and yeah the whole time so then by the end that he's supposed to like have this like come to come to god moment and, and realize that where he's been like there's never a point where we feel his character like make a turn like that he's just and it might have just been tony shalhoub did like knew the movie that he was in and didn't want to be there and was legitimately annoyed with everything that was going on and that just came across in the performance because like and i i don't want to put all of this on tony shalhoub i don't think if they would have cast somebody else in that role that really would have embodied this father and no. they like the writing wasn't there for him. He didn't really have much of anything to play off of. Like Shannon Elizabeth is not a, a great actress by any stretch. She's got her like, you know, roles that she can fill or whatever, but she's not giving anything back to him. He's not getting anything back from like the eight year old kid. Um, only really somebody who's giving 110% here is Matthew Lillard, but Matthew Lillard will just kind of go off and do his thing. And the rest of the movie just needs to be around him. Uh, so there's it, not much for him to really play off of, but I, I felt like it was worth mentioning just because the, the crux of the movie does rely on the father figure having that arc. And one, it's not written down for him to have an arc. And then two, there's nothing for him to perform against to, to walk us down that path to Agreed. where we see his redemption. I agree. I think the only, uh, no, hundred percent. I think the one thing I was going to agree with, but it's more just like a shame, like, uh, you know, was with Shannon Elizabeth, like you said, it's like there's there there's really only I feel like she only got like limited opportunity, especially post American Pie, which is a shame because I will say I think she's legit great in Scary Movie, and so oh, I would, like yes. would have loved more like screwball kind of like comedy. She had like really good timing, but it's like I felt like the American Pie role was more what they started to cast her in versus the Scary Movie, which is a shame because she's very funny um she's very funny yeah she yeah. has great comedic timing i don't think i mean besides american pie one and two and, and reunion jack frost <laughs> oh wait a, oh wait a minute is that counted as a comedy i mean i kind of laughable but i don't know if it's I supposed to be a comedy i think they're going for comedy in it um <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah it, well, and I guess James Allen Bob Strike Back as well. Oh, she's sure. this comedy, but yeah, but like she's, I, I just, yeah, I adore that scene in Siri movie where she's like, "Oh, am I playing the victim? Am I playing helpless victim? Oh, look, I'm a severed head. Oh, gross! Like, it's so give me a break." <laughs> so no, yeah, the, she's great in that, and even in James Allen Bob, like she, yeah, I, yeah. I, just miscast i guess yeah. all around everyone except matthew lillard yes and everyone unfortunately is... they didn't do like a nutty professor where they just put matthew lillard in the role of everybody in the movie then i think Ooh. this would have been a 10 out of 10 you need to do a someone needs to do a super cut where they take like matthew lillard roles from other movie and like superimpose them like 
Kung Pao Enter the Fist style. Oh, hell 13 yeah. Ghosts. <laughs> I'd watch the hell out of that. Someone should do it. Matthew Lillard and Steve Odenkirk uh, team up and, and give us 13 Ghosts <laughs> with Matthew Lillard playing every uh, part uh, in a in a uh, anomalies uh, being John Malkovich kind of situation. <laughs> would, would love that. Um, you got a day one ticket from me already. I'm there. <laughs> uh, do you have any other thoughts on, on these your picks? Th- these were great, by the way. This was really fun to... To go through these these six movies, like good, I, I say, I'm glad to good. hear it. I yeah, I mean, coming into October, I was just thinking about like we talk about horror movies all the time. Like it's not just October, so I was trying to think of something that's maybe a little bit special or a little bit different than than what we would normally do. And and I thought that this was a good way to say like you know, let's get a little bit of the old, little bit of the still old. Um, but not as old, uh, but, but, you know, sort of have that reflective period of, of the history of horror. And I think, uh, I think we had a lot to, to talk about. I hope some of it was, uh, interesting and and fun. Um, and I'm actually kind of looking forward to doing it again. I'm, I'm, I'm theorizing other ways that we can sort of tackle something like this. Well, I bring it on. I, I had a really good time with it. So I hope people enjoy it as well. Um, and before we wrap this up, we should tease next week and next week. Well, I mean, as we just, you know, lamented on and on about, we just watched six movies, uh, for this episode <laughs> and, uh, we both partake in the Scarecrow video psychotronic challenge every year where you got to watch mm-hmm. a horror movie every day or a psychotronic movie every day, uh, that fits a category and we're pretty tired. We've been watching a lot of things in addition to just our normal busy lives. So, um, we sort of went back and forth trying to figure out what our last episode for October was going to be. So to make it easier on us, we decided, uh, you may have noticed this, there's been a huge glut of new horror movies in September and October of this year. It's been pretty stacked. So mm-hmm. we're going to do, uh, you know, I know we sometimes do our monthly catch-up. We're going to do a catch-up of the September and October horror movies specifically. Um and I will give you the titles and where they're available because most uh, before we talk about them, um, some of them both of us will have seen. Some of us, some of them maybe just one of us have seen. But uh, yeah, if you want to get caught up with the movies that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about Barbarian, which uh, by the time the episode drops will be on HBO Max. It will also most likely still be in theaters. Um, we will also be talking about Ty West's Pearl, which is the prequel to X. Um, We'll also probably talk briefly about X because I don't think we've talked about it on this podcast, um, which will be, I think it might be in some theaters, but it will be available for purchase digitally by mm. the episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about Smile, uh, which is definitely crushing it at the box office. Um, and that's out in theaters. Also out in theaters is Terrifier 2 uh, on a much smaller scale, but also crushing it at the box office. Um, then we have a trio of movies that are on Shudder. Uh, we're going to be talking about Deadstream. We're going to be talking about Dark Glasses, which is the newest film of Dario Argento. And we'll be also be talking about uh, VHS 99, the latest in that anthology series. And, of course, uh, to follow up on episode 31 that we talked about last year, we will be talking about Halloween Ends, which is currently out in theaters and on Peacock Premium 2 stream. So you can check out all those movies prior to us talking about them. But in the meantime, you can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thegoodbadwhat. And you can email us at thegoodthebadthewhat at gmail.com. 
If you feel generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations will go back to the show, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio on SoundCloud link you could find in the show notes respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at THOChristo89 or on Letterboxd at C underscore T-H-O-M. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ryali, that's R-Y-O-L-I-E, or on Letterboxd at Ryan underscore Oliver. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with our September-October horror catch-up. Is it bad tonight? Oh, bad. That's one way to describe it.